Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Joya Urazzi to discuss her book, Writing That Breaks Stones, African Child Soldier Narratives. Thanks for tuning in. Writing That Breaks Stones, African Child Soldier Narratives is a critical examination of six memoirs and six novels written by and about young adults from Africa who were once child soldiers. It analyzes both how such narratives document human rights violations and how they connect and disconnect from their readers in the global public sphere. It draws on literary scholarship about novels and memoirs, as well as on fieldwork conducted by social scientists about African children in combat situations. The six memoirs analyzed in writing that break stones focus on a lone individual's struggles in a hostile environment, and they use repetition, logical contradictions, narrative breaks, and reversals of binaries in order to tell their stories. By contrast, the novels use narrative ambiguity, circularity, fragmentation, and notions of dystopia in ways that call attention to the child soldiers' communities and environments. All 12 narratives depict the child soldiers' agency and culpability somewhat ambiguously, effectively reflecting the ethical dilemmas of African children in combat. Joya Urazzi is Associate Professor and Associate Chair in the Department of English at St. Louis University in Missouri. She's the author of This Is No Place for a Woman, Nadine Gordimer, Nayatara Sagal, Bucci Emicheta, and the Politics of Gender in the Year 2000, and In the Jaws of the Leviathan, Genocide Fiction and Film in 2010. Joya, thank you so much for joining me to talk about your book today. Thank you for having me, Kurt. It's a pleasure. One of the things that I was really struck by in reading the preface to your book is having to encounter how widespread the problem of child soldiers and children affected by war really is. You know, it, we tend to depict it as localized in a particular area, but in fact, it's happening on the African continent and elsewhere and in any number of different settings. Thinking of it that way, I wonder, how do you pick out you know, 12 works to focus on uh, for a book like this? Well, thank you for that question. You're absolutely right. It's a very widespread phenomenon. In fact, there isn't a continent other than Antarctica where there are no child soldiers. We call them different names in different places. I mean, here we might call them underage gangsters, for example. But yes, they exist everywhere. You know, my research area is African literature. So I focused on Africa for that reason. But that's not to say that there aren't child soldiers elsewhere. Why these 12? Well, what I realized when I was started my reading was that all of them actually appear differently than when you read them for the first time. That's a strange thing to say, right? What I mean is you read them expecting something, whether it's some kind of uplifting story of trial against odds or whatever. And what you actually get is something very different. And that was one of the reasons I selected the 12 I did. In other words, they lead you in different directions, most of which are very interesting. And usually, if you're like me, the direction you go on is different from what you anticipate. There are lots of other reasons, but suffice it to say that I also picked them based on the way they were written. In other words, some were collaborative, some were sole authored. 
So that also uh, factored in as well as genre. I really want to get to talking about some of those questions about the genre and about the production of these things, especially around the idea that they're collaborative projects to some degree. I wonder if we could linger a little bit longer on the works themselves. Did you pick books that were representative of a particular set of conflicts or did that enter into your mind at all thinking about, you know, we want to make sure we touch on things going on in the Democratic Republic of the Congo or in Senegal, etc. Or was it more sort of, as you say, aesthetic in nature? It was mostly aesthetic. I mean, I did like anyone else doing research for the first time had, I did have some ideas. For example, I thought I'd focus on South Africa, for Southern Africa, for example, since I was familiar with that region, I'd lived there for six months. But what ended up happening was I picked them based on the kind of narrative they told. And it just happened that some of them were from Eastern Africa and some were from Western Africa. And in fact, very few were from Southern Africa. But that's partly because of the way they were written. And the other thing, of course, that probably would take much longer to go into, so I'll summarize it, and that is how they got published. Uh, Most of them had to have publishers in the West in order for us to even read them. Yeah, and there's even, I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, I have to admit that, that my knowledge of this particular genre of writing is very limited, and it's limited to things like Ismail Bea's book and the ones that sort of bubble up and that become sort of cultural touchstones in those moments where we where we take a moment as a culture to stop and look at those things. Are the works better known in the West than they are in Africa? Yes and no. As, you know, as I found out, some were actually published in Europe, in European languages. Some were published in North America. But most of them were actually written either in English or were available in English translation. So, of course, that immediately suggests that their readership is primarily North American Europe. So that would suggest that they were more well-known. However, in my own field work, uh, which built on the social scientists you mentioned in the intro, I did ask people. This was primarily Sierra Leone. And among educated intellectual circles, the, te- the texts are fairly well-known. And more importantly, I think uh, what I discovered is contrary to our beliefs, adolescents and children in those parts of the world are much more savvy than we give them credit for. So even if children may not have read the books themselves, they were definitely aware they existed. And more importantly, they were aware that they existed as capital, in other words, cultural capital, that they had weight. That's really interesting that you mentioned the the children in Africa are aware of these things. And I think that you're really getting to something that the book is dealing with pretty extensively, which is the way that these narratives are produced and, and mean different things to different audiences. So the, the children in Africa that you're describing see them as cultural capital, I'm sure see them in part as capital capital and opportunity to earn and to be um, part of a, a larger global industry and conversation. And then, of course, they mean something entirely differently to, you know, Europeans who are reading about the experiences of these children soldiers. Could you say a little bit about your own field work? I found it, there's some indications of it in the book, and you mentioned it here. What did that process look like? Well, unlike social scientists, we in the fields of literature are not as well equipped as they are for things like that. So I sort of had to invent it as I went along. But the way I went about doing it was I used academic contacts. So I was fortunate that I had friends and 
colleagues and professors whose work I respected in many places, particularly Makarere University in Uganda, University of Sierra Leone in Sierra Leone, and also, of course, at what was then known as Nelson Mandela Metropolitan University in South Africa and in several other parts of uh, Africa, and basically used insights I gained from them and then used For example, um, some of them actually suggested texts I hadn't read. So in a very concrete way, that was uh, something. And the others suggested I visit certain areas. And so I did. So for example, Professor Aran Musanjezi in uh, Makarere University recommended, he was an expert on oral testimony among children. He's a communications professor. And he was the one who actually brought to my attention a lot of the ethical implications of doing fieldwork, such as how do you know whether the stories you're hearing are what actually happened? And how do you ensure that the children you're talking to aren't feeling under some kind of obligation to tell you things that they think you want to hear and things like that? So there were many, many ways in which I was indebted to the insights I got from others. And I actually did travel to camps for displaced children and things like that. And Since I wasn't a social scientist, that didn't translate in a very tangible way, but it definitely widened my vision in terms of what the actual conditions on the ground are like for children. Uh, I also was fortunate to actually, and I still have contact with him, uh, I made contact with a former child soldier from uh, Western Africa, and talking to him was invaluable. Could you say a little bit about, you know, you're talking about thinking about what kinds of stories the children are telling you and what kinds of stories they feel like they should be telling you. What sorts of things did you hear when you were there? And how did that reflect on, you know, you're thinking about the genre of these works and the kinds of storytelling that they're doing? Well, one of the first things I found out even before I did any fieldwork was that memoirs for various reasons were much more scrutinized in terms of authenticity. So there is a perception I think a lot of us have, which I may myself uh, in, to some degree uh, sort of bought into, if you want to call it that. And that is that memoirs are somehow supposed to tell us the truth, whereas novels are under no such obligation. That isn't, of course, the case. Uh, memoirs and novels both have factual elements, or if you want to call it uh, sort of accurate, if you want to call it that, elements, and they also have a certain degree of fictitious or imaginary or imaginative elements as well. Yet somehow the memoirs were scrutinized much more, whether by journalists or by politicians, eager to point out inconsistencies in them. I don't know if that answers your question per se, but what I started out uh, trying to figure out why that was. And uh, what I discovered was, in fact, that as with any other kind of writing, people who write, whether they're memoirs or novels, have their own particular take on events that they want to present to their readers. And uh, while the memoir writers may have possibly stuck to a more lenient narrative, not all of them did. And they certainly chose things to put in and chose things to leave out. All that being said, you know, uh, certainly some of the more well-known writers, there is ample evidence to believe that they actually got some of their facts wrong. 
And I spent many months agonizing over that and wondering what to make of that, reading up what other scholars had written. And at the end of the day, why, of course, their accuracy matters. In other words, how long a war was raged, how many people died, those things really matter. But in terms of the narrative, what matters also is how they tell their stories. And in that, if there are certain facts that possibly got distorted or long drawn out or shortened, what matters to me as a scholar of literature is why that is the case and not necessarily just that it happened. And there are usually some aesthetic reasons, not always, but there are sometimes other reasons for those things. One of the potential reasons that I'm thinking of that you deal with a bit in the book is the role of writing as a kind of therapy, that some of this work seems to grow out of attempts to grapple with the reality or unreality of what happened, and that the writing serves a particular purpose, not just that the writer wants to enact on the public or on you know the, the sweep of history, but also a very personal purpose in terms of coming to terms with what what has happened or what has been done and those kinds of things. Did you find that the writers that you looked at were willing to come to terms with those stretches of the truth or those exaggerations or diminishments in service of aesthetic means or other kinds of means? Yes, well, uh, some of them. There were so many sort of, if you like, variations on that. In many instances, I think... Uh, especially the novelists, it was quite deliberate, right? So for the best example I can think of is Amadou Karuma's Allah is Not Obliged, which is from Côte d'Ivoire. And it's constantly calling attention to its own unreliability. So the narrator in that novel basically tells you, oh, I'm telling you this story, but by the way, I'm going to look up these big words that I know you want me to put in there because I don't really know what they mean, but I'm going to put them in there anyway. Oh, and you know, this warlord that I worked with, but let me tell you a little bit about him. He's only doing this because he wants to make himself look good. Oh, and don't believe what I said. And it goes on. That is sort of one example of a novelist who is deliberately making his own narrative suspect, possibly because he wants to draw attention to the nature of the narrative storytelling itself and how subjective it is. And then there are other writers who tried to present, a, I mean, who definitely did present a more straightforward linear narrative. But even in that, I wouldn't say they obviously called attention to their own unreliability unreli in the same way the novelist did. But there definitely were things that they left out. The title that you drew attention to, um, therapeutic, I think is the word you just used. That sort of is the case in a lot of the memoirs. I would say it's much less so in the novels. And the title of my book comes from an interview that I conducted with one former child soldier. And that's exactly what she said, that my objective was to break the stones that were on my back. And the writing enabled me to do that, it, sort of suggesting that therapy was really what her agenda was. The writing was therapeutic. And if you see it that way, then your focus is going to be on telling the story the best way you know how rather than getting all the facts right, if you see what I'm saying. I think that's such a powerful statement about the, the practice of literature or the practice of storytelling to be able to, you know, to hear someone who's, who's obviously experienced a lot of heavy 
stuff say that you know being able to write about it breaks those stones and gives some kind of not necessarily resolution but some movement toward healing is is really powerful is it true that most of the memoirs or many of the memoirs are the ones that were written in conjunction with journalists or other kind of writing assistants yes i mean the novels were primarily solo authored primarily because the novelists themselves who are very fine novelists uh you know, were well in control of their craft and had, of course, a particular angle that they wanted to present, which was their angle, their particular individual angle. Yes, so the it was mostly the memoirs, but not all of them by any means, that were more collaborative. And from what I could tell, the reasons were quite varied. In some instances, the former child soldiers were not that proficient in a particular language. In other instances, in, in fact, uh, Chana Ketetsi, whose interview I just cited a little while ago, the one who said the writing process was like breaking stones off my back. Her memoir is, I analyze early in my book, Child Soldiers, the name of her memoir. She actually wrote her memoir in Denmark, which is where she had emigrated. And uh, she was still quite traumatized then, from what I could tell. And she needed uh, not only help writing the, the memoir, but then again, because it was Denmark, it was, she wrote in English, but it was translated into Danish and into many other European languages. So there were multiple layers in how it eventually got to us uh, in North America. So yeah, I think, uh, and then other in other instances, the collaboration seems to have been for other reasons uh, that I could go into more. But uh, for example, um, Girl Soldier, the collaboration seems to have been based on faith. In other words, the, it was an evangelical sort of collaboration where the agenda was more to talk about how belief in God can get you out of a terrible situation. I wonder if we could pick up on that note at the end of your last thought about the memoir having been written, it seems, for a particular evangelical purpose. We've talked a lot about what the writing does for the authors, for the folks who, you know, sit down and try to capture their experience and present it back to themselves as a way of healing or understanding or coming to terms with, you know, what happens when they're enlisted or, or suffer the horrors of war. What use gets made of these books outside of the individual author, outside of Africa, you know, in, in Europe, in the U.S.? What are we doing with these stories of child soldiers socio-politically? Well, there's a, I mean, there's a whole lot that could be said there. I think the word I used before was sort of cultural capital. They have weight, let's put it that way. And I think in many instances, writers who came a bit later are very much aware of that. So for example, in the case of China Ketetsi, uh, who wrote the novel, the memoir, Child uh, Soldier, the one who I interviewed and who indicated that uh, writing was like breaking stones off her back, she wrote it, as she said, to sort of help her heal. However, her record or the memoir itself was uh, very roundly criticized by the Ugandan government. So it generated a huge controversy. Uh, Likewise, Ishmael Bia's uh, memoir, A Long Way Gone, 
not exactly like that, but similar, where uh, Australian journalists went back and proved that he wasn't a soldier when he said he was. And so there were doubts cast about whether he, in fact, had written it. So basically, those are sort of concrete examples of people in the larger global arena reacting to these narratives in very concrete ways. One other thing that is often mentioned in this context is that people who are, let's say, casting doubt for various reasons on these uh, texts often imply that these are the means to gain material reward. In other words, that they charge the writers that you've written this, I'm not, not in a literal way, of course, but sort of imply that the texts were generated in the first place just to provide material benefit, uh, such as, let's say, a visa or an immigration clearance to go live somewhere else. So while some of these may seem far-fetched to us uh, here in the US, some actually matter uh, a great deal to the people living in those countries. At the end of the day, what we can say is, regardless of what I or you may think about the aesthetic quality of the work, we do have to factor in that they generally have these ripple effects around the world. And we have to figure out to what extent that influences other readers as they're reading it. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Joya Urazzi, author of Writing That Breaks Stones, African Child Soldier Narratives. Let's focus on the narrative techniques a little bit. So we've talked a lot about the work generally, about the function of writing. I think one of the propositions in your book is the part of the way to figure out what those effects are, how they work on readers, is to think very carefully about the way that they're structured or the way that they employ literary techniques to connect with readers, to, to disconnect you know, with readers. What were some of the prominent techniques that you found in either the memoirs or the fiction? Uh, and how, did, how do you see the authors using them? Yeah, they all, as I said, when I first started reading them, I, well, you know, one could say we all have expectations, but they all, uh, all the texts tended to do things in ways that were unexpected. I use the word narrative uncertainty to sort of describe that. It's a rough sort of, if you like, label that one could put on them. But everything from the way that, uh, I guess I would say it's both in form and content. So in other words, I'm not, when I'm talking about uncertainty or ambiguity, I'm not just talking about what's in the text, such as a child soldier that doesn't conform to a certain prior expectation that we might have about a character, but also the way the novels and memoirs were written. And uh, the example I gave earlier of a narrator who's constantly making you think he's unreliable would be one example of that. But there were lots of others in the China Ketetsi text, for example, although it doesn't seem to be as obvious, uh, there, are, there are lots of repetitions and mirrorings of events. So when she's describing all the harrowing events that uh, she endured, there are events that seem to not literally repeat, but seem very similar to events that have happened in the past. So for example, when she at one point uh, goes back to meet her father, she goes to his house. His, uh, the text leads us to believe that her father was very abusive. And she has now been trained as a soldier. She goes back with this big rifle with the intention of killing him. 
in revenge. And of course, she loses a nerve and she doesn't do it. She runs away again. So in other words, the, the narrative sets up the expectation that there's going to be this big showdown between father and daughter, and then she runs away. It sort of fizzles out. And similarly, in another episode, she reunites with her biological mother, whom she had been separated from at birth. And again, you're expecting that uh, there'll be this very joyful reunion between mother and daughter, and she does the disappearing act again. And in this case, she loses a nerve because she thinks, she, after all, she doesn't know her mother. She thinks her mother is going to, has designs on her life. Uh, and so she, she thinks, oh, she's actually uh, pretending to be welcoming. She's really going to kill me. So she runs away. So there's, there's this constant calling attention to the fact that in order to deal with her situation, her preferred mode was to back off and run away. And that's the sort of more obvious in the narrative. It's in, in other narratives, I noticed similar patterns where there were events happening over and over again that kept mirroring each other. And you didn't always get uh, resolution. And one of the texts that was very intriguing this way was Chris Abani's Song for Night, where the whole story is told from the perspective of a child soldier who we realized from the very first page is actually dead. So he's speaking to us from the dead. But nevertheless, he behaves throughout the narrative as if he were a human being. Uh, he sees, he feels, yes, he doesn't seem to feel much pain, but he feels hunger, he feels fear, he misses his mother, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's a bizarre, dystopic kind of novel uh, in which you are constantly left wondering not just in terms of his character, but the way the novel is told, he keeps, it's almost like you're going round and round in circles throughout. You know, he reaches one point, he figures something out, then he comes back almost literally, uh, but not quite to where he was before. And it's a it's sort of cyclical narrative. There's no resolution at the end. You know, you use the word dystopia, and I was wondering, thinking about story structures and the kinds of repetitions that you're talking about, are these works from Africa participating in like recognizable literary genres more specific than like fiction or memoir? Are they drawing on traditions that readers might be familiar with in terms of dystopian work or you know, war reporting, that kinds of thing? Yes, there is, of course, a very a more well-known genre, the African war novel, right, which readers might recognize and has been written about by various other scholars, such as Eleni Kondoriotis, who's written a uh, fine critical uh, analysis of the African war novel. So in that sense, one, uh, the first thing one might think of when one sees these texts is that they, oh, they're about war, right? Because these, these are children experiencing war. But what do you think of when you think of a war novel? Like War and Peace or Mailers, uh, Naked and the Dead, you know, sort of grandiose colonial Western army kind of thing, platoon, that kind of, I guess most of them are Vietnam War novels I'm thinking <laughs> of, but yeah, this very yeah. sort of, you know, brawn and bravery and also yeah. failure and, you know, the kind of Hemingway man meets his yeah. match on the battlefield sort of thing. Yeah. Well, you know, these are nothing like that. So yes, they might focus on a lone individual and disillusionment and, uh, you know, war trauma and all the rest of it. But there's no uh, sense, for example, in many instances that the kids have actually 
at least at the point of writing, not necessarily the author who's reflecting back, but the persona in the novel or the memoir doesn't really understand, doesn't gain much insight, goes through these horrific experiences, but there isn't a sort of, if you like, a Hemingway-esque wounded hero at the end and of them. The, the other thing, of course, people think of, I think, since you asked that question, is maybe children's uh, writing, right? Because these are, uh, these are texts about children. But again, the notion of a sort of happy, idyllic childhood is nowhere in these texts either. And there's a section in my book where I talk about the way in which many critics may look at these and say, oh, but these, these are quote-unquote bad children or children gone bad. And so all we need to do is figure out how to make them good again. But in a sense, uh, for example, even in many fairy tales, you know, kids have horrible experiences, whether it's Hansel and Gretel or anyone else. But at the end, they come back to their societies. They are, if you like, good little kids at the end. In these texts, I think what the authors are trying to imply is that the societies that produce them are not conducive to keeping them safe, even after they come back from conflict for various reasons, you know, whether it's a weak government or whether it's the fact that the economic situation is really bad. And so these children were vulnerable even before they got co-opted into war. And when they come back or when they're when they return to society, there isn't that if you like European, I'll use the word Bildungsroman, right? The novel of development where the hero comes back somewhat chastened and cynical, but a better man, if you want to put it that way. But in this case, that doesn't happen either. So in a sense, it's grounded in the realities of the societies, but it's also very chastening and somewhat less idealistic, let's put it that way. Well, and as you say, the conditions on the ground in the various countries that that these experiences are happening in are are themselves to blame for the the fact that these children end up soldiers to begin with. I mean, I have a hard time believing that even if they might do so eagerly, being presented with child soldiering as an option isn't something that most young children think about in terms of like actual, you know, enacting in the world so that it seems like another way that they might be unique from the sort of, you know, Western war novel is that they're a lot, most of them are victims of this happening to them. They're not, not voluntary sort of enlistees or even folks who've been drafted at a, at a mature age when they could have made other choices. Yes. And in fact, if you, if you read any of the social science literature, and of course, also based on my own uh, conversations with young people in Eastern West Africa, the vast, at least initially, the, the, many of them were kidnapped and forced to fight. Many of them were drugged. And what, the, uh, what lawyers, for example, have to grapple with, and this did happen in Sierra Leone, there was an international criminal court set up. It becomes a huge legal problem. And this is why I think the, the fiction reflects that, is that they're both victims and perpetrators, both at once. So the issue of guilt becomes very murky. On the one hand, they were kidnapped, many of them, and drugged and forced to do what they did. So they're definitely victims. But on the other hand, the damage that they did, whether it was murder and mayhem and destruction or whatever, had very real implications for the people upon whom they perpetrated these outrages. 
and in that sense they were perpetrators as well so how do you as a lawyer find a way of assigning blame the the difference of course between what i'm doing and what a lawyer does is that there is something one has to grapple with but it is it is in a sense that very ambiguity is reflected in the way the stories are written the child soldier protagonists are both victims and perpetrators they are both good and bad they are both traumatized and clear headed uh, and the narratives uh, are likewise you know it's interesting that connects i think to our questions earlier about form and history and fact in these stories because you're also introducing you know the element of narcotics you take a very young people you get them you drug them in some way or other and then ask them some years later to recount with precise detail exactly where they were and when and what they did and you're immediately in this sort of world of uncertainty you know how much can you trust how much could this person even conceivably remember about those experiences through all of the trauma and the drug use and the years and all of the horrors witnessed it's an interesting node to see all of that coming together in literature and to to see you grappling with like how to pick it apart and what the what the effect of it might be for the folks who read those kind of books yes and in fact trauma theory was something that of course i also had to deal with and even outside of child soldier narratives as with any other field uh, theorists have agreements and disagreements and uh, some of the thinking now is uh, the earlier thinking was that you you it was impossible to construct a linear straightforward narrative when you'd been traumatized because your memory was messed up but now there's a considerable thought that in fact people do make choices and what they choose to remember and what they choose to forget is still to a certain extent within their control and if people choose to forget certain things when they went through a traumatic situation that may be because they choose to forget it rather than that there's some kind of biological impairment that's preventing them which uh, regardless uh, since i'm not a scientist that is something that scientists have to grapple with but in, from my perspective it sort of underscores the the value of this uh, this subgenre of writing that in fact stories are told the way the writer chooses to tell them and uh, what gets left in and what gets left out is usually part of the larger agenda that the writer has as as well as the culture of course that the writer comes from and is probably less a result of some kind of inability to remember let's put it that way that's not to say of course that trauma doesn't mess with people's brains i'm sure there are of course uh, there's a lot of evidence to prove that uh, you know people get stuck in remembering things that are very debilitating and make it hard for them to move on with their lives but as far as storytelling goes there are numerous numerous ways in which what caused the trauma can be told in a story and it doesn't always have to be a logical linear story could i ask a question about about storytelling john is another genre question uh, and about techniques of storytelling Last season on the podcast I spoke to uh, Shirley Hanshaw who did a book for MSU Press called Remembering and Surviving which is about African American novels of the Vietnam War so all of this Vietnam War literature written by African Americans sort of immediately in the wake of the war and some several decades later 
And one of the things that Dr. Hanshaw was looking at was the degree to which these folks were drawing on African storytelling traditions, particularly like spiritual storytelling traditions as a way of understanding their experience. So looking at mythological figures like Anansi and others and the trickster and other kinds of forms uh, as they were deployed by African-Americans struggling with their experiences in Vietnam is the same, not, not the same thing true, but, but what kinds of African traditions are these folks drawing on uh, in the works that they're producing? Various different kinds. Um, to give you an example, one of the novels that I analyze is called Moses, Citizen and Me, and it's written by uh, Delia Jarrett Macaulay, who is British Sierra Leonean. And I guess you could, uh, like anything else, it's a, it's a mixture of different traditions. So there's magic realism in there, but there's also a lot of African elements. And um, so, for example, the protagonist travels to uh, Freetown um, and meets up with the family of uh, a boy who was once a child soldier. And um, he uh, has committed some terrible crimes and is unable to speak. And so what ends up happening is she literally has, a, in a sense, a sort of not a dream vision, but it's a sort of magical element where she imagines that the little boy is literally inside her head. She's getting her hair braided, African style. And as her hair is being braided, she sees child soldiers climbing up, miniature child soldiers, not literally, of course, and they go inside her head. And that gives her the opportunity to sort of see what it's like from their perspective. And what they end up doing is running away to this uh, the Gola Forest, which is um, in Sierra Leone. It was uh, the place where during the war, many uh, rebel units hid out. And there's this, if you, for lack of a better word, a sort of not a griot figure, but a shaman-like figure who has this mysterious name, Bembaji. And he sort of, if you like, in American terms, run, decides to run a summer camp for these kids uh, and heal them. And so he gets them doing various activities there. All of this, of course, is taking place in, literally inside her head, in, in a sense. It's a dream vision. And uh, she watches as they, they play, uh, they do games, math puzzles, and things like that. And eventually they put on a play, which is a Creole version of Julius Caesar called Julius Caesar, and uh, the, the little boys, then various ages, all take on one of the parts. And her little nephew, the one she'd come to meet, finds he cannot say anything, even on stage. But uh, eventually he, so he comes on stage and he sings a song and he, that's it, his role is over. I think he's Brutus's assistant or something like that. And uh, but then when the dream vision ends, he is slowly, as the novel progresses, able to heal. So you can see just from that example, she uses a lot of different things. Magic realism, which isn't really African. It's, uh, of course, uh, uh, most well known in South America. Um, but she infuses that with African elements, braiding hair, you know, me, uh, meeting in a forest and uh, doing. And by the way, he's a farmer. He, he feeds the kids home-cooked meals. Uh, so it's a sort of mixture, is what I'd say. So, and the novel keeps weaving in and out of, you know, realistic and surrealistic events. As you say, there's 12 different works in your book. And I wondered if 
you could maybe like emphasize one or two that would be a good place for readers to start. Obviously, we want them to check out your book, Writing That Breaks Stones. But if they're also looking to read some of the primary texts, which would be a couple that that folks should start with? Uh, I would say probably the one that is most familiar to people here could be a place to start, which is Bia's book, A Long Way Gone. It's relatively a quick read. So I'd start with that. The other one I would say would be another one, another author who's somewhat well-known, uh, and that's Adichie, Chimamanda Adichie, Half of a Yellow Sun. That's not really a child soldier novel, but there's a series of episodes about child soldiers in there. Uh, so I'd, I'd say start with those two. As we sort of close up here, Joya, could you say a little bit about maybe bring us back to the global context? How do these narratives of African child soldiers fit into what we might think of you know, as world literature more broadly? Well, first off, the quick answer is that child soldiers, they are a phenomenon everywhere. So this is by no means a uniquely African thing. And the second thing I'd say is that since there's a wide variety of texts, there are some texts that possibly, I imagine, uh, have much more nuance and complexity to them and that possibly might uh, stand as a good example of this particular subgenre of writing, which is the child soldier novel, maybe more so than others. But I would say that overall, None of these should be seen as necessarily typical or a sole representative of the cultures that produce them. They are products of their cultures, but they are also subjective takes on a particular situation that happened at a particular time and should be treated as such. I think that's a really strong point to end on this notion that these offer a window into particular kinds of experiences in particular moments. And it's an important window in a much bigger picture of a problem that we face, you know, throughout human history and, and indeed, as you say, globally. Mm-hmm. Joya, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I, I've learned so much from interacting with your book and I urge people to, to check out Writing That Breaks Stones. I've enjoyed this conversation a lot and and really relished the opportunity to talk to you today. Thank you very much for having me. Writing That Breaks Stones, African Child Soldier Narratives is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo, and the Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabe Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Adawa, and Potawatomi people. The university resides specifically on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books.